0: Hi there, welcome to Live at Gilmore Guitars. I'm David Gilmore and on today's podcast, it's the driving force, the singer, the songwriter behind a central Alberta institution of a band, The Frank. It's Denver Swainson, Live at Gilmore Guitars.
1: You're gonna.
0: Gilmore guitars, welcome to the uh, to the show. Thanks it's for Denver Swainson of the Frank and your beautiful wife Sarah is here as well. <laughs> Thanks for coming in.
2: Well, thank you for having us here. And
0: you're taking us a little bit back with that song "Slick Your Hair Back" from Blackfolds Revisited. That was a record that you did back in. Ninety nine,
2: or was so that? That one was uh, two thousand five. Okay. But this song was probably written closer to two or nineteen ninety nine than two thousand five. It was probably one of the first songs that was written after the first album, where we decided, hey, we should maybe do a second album here.
0: You guys have been together for a long time. It's 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 pretty cool that uh, you've had that sort of longevity uh, as the Frank. Is it still the same guys that? have been in the band since the beginning
2: no we have uh, changed things gradually over the years because we did have a you know in the very beginning we probably had a lot of really high hopes for achieving stardom right out of high school and stuff right like that um but we did have a rule that uh if it was no longer fun if it was no longer something you wanted to to do that uh or if it just wasn't working at the time that uh you know there was no you didn't have to stay in it just because kind of it just to stay in it So we formed in around 97 and had our first gig probably in 97 or 98 then released the album and then we all moved to a house together in 2000 once we were all 18 and out of high school Mm -hmm. and that was pretty fun (laughs) and uh and then started getting into being able to play the bars and we played Jim and Jerry's at the Legion every Sunday for uh For almost a year before we could get into any other bars Uh, and that was with uh, Ryan on bass and Will on drums and we did have uh, Niels Anderson on guitar for a little bit and then Chris McLean on guitar and he moved out to the house with us and then he uh, was the first one to leave to go do something else and he pursued uh, graphic FX and now he actually works in movies he lives in Toronto and he is working around the world on movies and shows that I You know that everybody knows, so mm-hmm. he uh he did that, and that's when we brought Sarah in the band. Would have been then because I couldn't play and sing everything that I right. wanted to do, and uh, and then it would have been a little bit after that, after we've been playing bars and stuff like that. Ryan wanted to do some other things, so he left, and then Al. Al Keen came in and took over, and uh, I worked with him and found out that he played bass. And I just said, "Well, do you want to play in the band?" And then he was with us for years, and he actually recorded "Black Falls Visited" with us. Okay. And then he had to go off and, and and work, and that was right when we had just we were just releasing the album. So we're like, "Well, we can't have any downtime right now." Where Joe, our current bass player, was uh, actually working as our sound man on gigs where we could get him in for that so he had been out to Carson Cole's studio and watched the recording kind of jumping around here a bit but um but so we at that time we did audition a couple bass players and it did not go well So after we auditioned those bass players, players. some scotches (laughs) or beers. Joe Joe will tell the story better than I do because he probably remembers it better. But I called him late one night and said, "Okay, Joe, you play guitar, you play keyboards, you have knowledge of the bass side of instruments, and you have knowledge of stringed instruments. Can you come play bass for us?" And and so he did, and and he still is. (laughs) And Will, our our original drummer, uh, after we went to LA, him and his wife were wanting to settle down a bit and start a family, so. That's when we were able to bring in my brother-in-law, Sarah's brother, John, on drums. So it's always been really gradual and for the right reasons, and uh, we treated it more like something to do that we want to do rather than a a business or something like that. And that actually might be why we uh, have been able to stay together for so long, is that we do know a lot of bands that if they don't get results in a certain time frame that it just didn't work for them. And then they try a different project where I don't know if we're just stubborn or what. Well,
0: I, I think everybody has a different idea of, of what it means to be successful. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're still getting together and, and jamming out and making music and continue to write new music. I think that is a success in itself.
2: Yeah. And now we're actually writing more than we've ever been able to before because, uh, right. When black Falls' visit was done in 2005 we were playing everywhere we could to pay that album off, right? And had no, no time to write songs. And now, especially with COVID and everything, we've had sometimes. Like, right? We've had enough songs for another album now for a couple of years. But the last album we released was twenty three songs, and this one's probably going to be the same once we're done and actually <laughs> get into the studio. And, and stuff. are you <laughs> going
0: to release it as a full record, or are you going to kind of take a page out of the current situation and do a single at a time? How 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 do you how do you I guess uh travel that sort of
2: yeah well and that's so far we've released everything we've done as a record whether it was you know 11 12 13 songs or just three or even 23 okay it's always been one lump sum record but I do think with the 23 song one that there is a problem there sometimes that maybe you know if you make a record that's too long for somebody to to sit through right that maybe some of the songs on the last half of it don't really get uh, played that much, and I'm guilty of it even with that record. I'll put it on Bluetooth to my truck, and I rarely get past the second half. So I don't know if we'd do two albums or multiple singles.
0: I don't know. So do the songs all have sort of a uh, an arcing theme that they need to be a part of a whole?
2: Not really. You know... I don't think we've ever had unless I'm just missing it I don't think we've ever had like a real themed album. it's just always been a collection of songs that has been since the last album
0: just sort of pertinent to a time more yeah. than anything
2: and we've been lucky enough to record here and there to to always get them all down which the last recording with the twenty three songs um we didn't really expect that that was our friend that recorded that that was mon and he came and said, let's record one night and in one night we Got over ten songs down, didn't really think much of it, didn't think that it was gonna become an album. We we're just thinking, okay, that's just fun, because he lives in England, so for him to come over here and say, Hey, let's spend a night recording, it's like, Yeah, let's let's do that. And then we found out that he wanted to do it at our house. We we thought that it was gonna be somewhere else. It's like, Oh yeah, we can do it at our house and our gear, but nothing's gonna come of that. And then the next year he came down again. He said, Let's do it again. <laughs> and all of a sudden we have two nights worth of recording and didn't know if it was it was just all live off the floor. And uh, he wanted to take it back with him and mix it and stuff if you want to and then when we got it back we're like holy cow i think we have a a double album here (laughs) and we weren't even really planning on it so that was a really nice surprise actually but that was also good to get all those songs down on that album that then all of a sudden work on other songs started too so because there's songs on that album on the 23 song album, on long after the storm that if i was to say to the band tonight let's run over this song we'd all have to brush up on it because we pulled out everything we had at that time. Mon kept saying, anything else, anything else? And we run through a song about five times. It's like, well, this is a five-year-old song, but if we can get it down tonight, let's try it. And the result was that there was a lot of songs that ended up on that album that we probably wouldn't have put right on albums or maybe weren't quite ready, but once they were on the album, we deemed them finished.
0: <laughs> and are you the main songwriter for the uh, Frank?
2: Main songwriter, yeah. I kind of come up with the first ideas and the first idea for the lyrics, Sarah quite often helps me with the uh, lyrics to finish the song, because I'm really good at getting a first verse and a chorus and nothing after that. So I can always use some extra help with that. But the way we write the songs too is that I'll usually come up with a chord structure and a melody line and then we'll take it to the band and then Joe figures out his uh, bass line and John figures out his drums, which uh, you know the, the song can go hundred different directions when it's brought into the band room and then we try it some different ways fast slow you know even completely different beats or a little bit more jazzy or just straightforward rock and usually by usually by a couple weeks we have an idea of where we want to take it and then it, that's usually when the lyrics get finished it usually comes together with one verse and the chorus let's see what we want to do with it and we still have a lot of songs that are on the back burner even from 20 years ago that right. we should probably bring back but if it if it doesn't ignite in band practice i don't really feel like forcing it kind of a thing and then that one goes in the work on pile because the next song we've had some songs that just even a couple lately that are a little bit funkier that just uh, the whole band is locked into just immediately and it's like wow everybody is doing exactly what the song needed kind of on the first run through nice so if you can hit those ones that's the ones that i always think uh, that's the one to run with a bit if we got it that easily everybody else would probably get it that easily
0: Let's get another song in. No.
2: The funky ones are for the band. But. This one is actually, I uh, took a drive through Sylvan a couple years ago and realized how much it had changed. We hadn't been out there since they cracked down on motorcycle volumes kind of thing we used to ride down the right. shore and stop for a beer and then once they got the decibel meters out we just kind of stopped going to sylvan and then went down there and saw the lake shore had changed and the hotel was gone it's a, a completely
0: gone. different town and, yeah
2: and it's still a very very beautiful town but not the town i recognize so i just kind of thought most people would have a story about that so this is called it feels like i'm gone
0: denver swainson live at gilmore guitars have been David Gilmore guitars, Denver Swainson of the Frank. That's a really great song.
2: Thank you. I, that was one that I sat down and it just came so quick. I'd written the the chords and kind of had the melody a little bit, and like I already had that before we drove into Sylvan and. and literally on that drive it was lyrics were going in my head and nice you mentioned than that.
0: you you mentioned uh riding your bikes into sylvan lake and uh you're you're a bit of a, a gearhead uh, yep. uh i've i followed a bit of your your socials you, you build bikes and you build cars i see you've got a, a, a vintage porsche yeah i got and, back on the road finally again nice uh, so a bit of a, a, a renaissance man but uh that hasn't come without a little bit of cost specifically yeah. to your your left hand you, you you did some damage working on a motor, uh, on a harley right
2: well actually we had been we had been out still that day on the bike as well and will and i the, the drummer um back in the day uh sarah was working and we rode around all day and then after sarah was done work we rode out for supper with sarah on the back and then we got back to the band house where we all lived together and we were fine everything was good We should have just stayed there. I should have just stayed there. But, I mean, I guess it would have happened one time or another. But I said, I'm going to go rent a movie. And that's when I still have my movie card for movie gallery and black (laughs) Falls or Broadway liquors there now. But uh, I went and grabbed a movie because I thought we should watch that. And it was on Monday of May long in 2003. And we're like, okay, well, last day of a long weekend. We had a good ride. We'll watch a movie. I got the movie, brought it home. And my bike has an open belt primary on it, on the left-hand side, that the kickstand fits completely up underneath on it. There's no kick tab. So you have to reach down with your hand and you should reach down carefully, which I did for years after I built it because I would never shut the bike off before I put the kickstand down because the test for the bike was always, can you put the kickstand down and would it run until I got my helmet off? If it would do that, if it would idle until I got my helmet off, it was running really good that day and don't do anything to it. But I reached down for that kickstand and went a little bit high and then went through the clutch drum and immediately knew that something was wrong. Right. The bike was still running. <laughs> <laughs> so I shut it off and then I, oh boy, I haven't told this story in a while. And I walked up to the house and Will and Sarah were both in the living room. And I came in, my hand was still in my glove and my glove was still intact, besides a couple of rips. And I, I said to Sarah, I guess I've cried wolf too many times. Admittedly, I've, Played a lot of practical jokes and said a lot of things. And so I came in the door and I said, I'm really hurt. we got to go to the hospital. And she told me to fuck off. (laughs) She said, let's get watching this movie. You've already been gone long enough. And then I'm like, no, we have to go. And then, okay, and grab me some paper towel and we got to go. And Will uh, fired up his old 80s Corolla and we piled in and went to the Red Deer Hospital and never thought to put the fingers on ice or or in milk or anything i don't even know if that actually really would have helped anything in the long run i'm glad it didn't because we got up to the emergency desk and the nurse there uh, obviously had seen enough of everything all day and she was like and what are you in here for i'm like well i think my fingertips are in this glove because that's i guess i left that out on the way to the hospital i took the glove off and we found out that there was fingertips in there so right now we were more in a, a, a real emergency situation it took forever just to even get my name and address and all that stuff down. And we'd sit back down and then got to the back room where they suture people up. And I was beside some guy who had gotten really drunk and fallen on his head. And he had to be sewn up too, but nobody would, was back there. So I finally went up to one of the nurses and said, when will somebody see me? And she it had been a long, long weekend for them, I think. And she said, what's, what's wrong with you? I'm like, well, my fingers are in this glove. And then right away, there was a doctor there, but the first thing he did was cut the glove open, pull the tips out and say, well, these are no good and threw them in the garbage right in front of me. Oh, you're kidding. I thought that, you know, just from everybody else I knew that had construction accidents with clean cuts and whatnot, that uh, I would just get them sewn back on and we'd be on our way back home. But no, got to, I think I was there what time do we we had to go to Edmonton the next day to see if there was any way they could save what was left because I had the bone all the way to the end right but the fingertip the the medical term is degloving and I still remember that when they're like "Ah, that's what happened to me but uh, you drove us up to Edmonton the next day and then I got to go to the U of A hospital and they got to think of every single way that they could keep some function with them they even talked about making incisions on my belly and stitching my hand to my stomach and letting them grow together I graft. and then taking them back apart again after that um, but by the time it was you know as the day was going on like they were numbing them locally but I'm also allergic to acetaminophen so painkillers they're always very careful with me with anything so I was awake the whole time they would just numb the fingers and then finally I was like just cut them off I want to go home this whole time Will and Sarah had been on White ab just hanging out at <laughs> yes. Yes, <it> <laughs> and then they came back and i went out for a smoke break break we uh we we're all smokers back then we're all all three of us are finished now for years but so i'm standing outside with my IV and my harley davidson t-shirt that i was wearing the day before riding around and everything I'm like this is enough so it's just like okay just i want to go home I'll, I'll deal with it later but the pain was so bad that it's just I, I don't care what it is anymore do something that we can start moving forward and uh Actually, the the doctors that worked on me were young doctors there and I was awake for the whole thing watching it happen and snip it back and everything. And they would, you know, numbing would wear off one finger and they were using an instrument on the other and then they'd brace it against the other and it would just hurt like hell. And I fell asleep a couple times during that just because the sleep the night before in the hospital wasn't that great. But when they were all done, they were able to take some skin from the ring finger and add it to the pinky finger so I was able to keep that last joint there like that they had thought they got the nail beds and everything and they were all stitched up and we were on our way home with some heavy duty prescription Darvon painkillers that have been since recalled. But I don't know if it's my allergy or what, but they didn't do a thing for me. So when when we got back home, I was still in a lot of pain. Had a couple of gears. That was better. I with the guitar, I, I think I played knocking on Heaven's Door and something else just to see manic if panic depression. Manic depression. And just to see if I would be able to do anything. And I could. So I was like, okay, I can do that. And I had plans for trying to learn lefty or doing whatever, but at least I was home. The two day ordeal was over. Painkillers weren't doing anything. And, uh, it it was in the next day or two, I had restrung a guitar left-handed, tried it. There was no hope for that. No hope at all. So I went back to right-handed and was trying to noodle around a bit. I was off work, supposed to be off work for two months with it. And
0: and you were trying to play the guitar while you were still healing up.
2: Yeah, I was uh, in stitches and uh, tensor bandages to keep the swelling down.
0: Yeah, so, well, Django Reinhardt, one of the best jazz guitar players in the world, plays with two fingers. Yeah, I know,
2: and we've been listening to some of his stuff too, and every time I hear it on CKU Air, and he's like, holy golly!" I use a little bit of gain on an electric guitar to cover up the, the mistakes. You can do all <laughs> that on an acoustic. It's like, i got some work to do, but it it was it came back fairly quickly and actually with that darv on i just stopped using it which turned out to be good because it was recalled years later and it was within a couple of days of getting my fingers cut off that we got a call from big rock brewery that there was 12 free cases of beer at the liquor store for us because the reps had been in a bar that we were playing and we had written a, a song for alberta genuine draft because it was a really cheap beer okay so the beer mid on the table got smaller every day while other people <laughs> went to work but i stayed there and, and played guitar and then one month to the day um like for the day tip it was uh, i think it was me 19th or 23rd whatever it was it wasn't exactly four weeks because it was a uh, it was a friday or a saturday but we played our first show back one month after i was still in stitches still in or bandages you, you
0: played a show yeah one yeah. month after losing your fingertips
2: yeah I went back to work two weeks after because I couldn't stand being at home with with nothing to do. Wow. And at that time, the only vehicle I had was the motorcycle actually, because I had a company vehicle before I was off for two months. And then when I didn't have the company vehicle, I had to fix my motorcycle. The belt, the belt got my fingers, but I also got the belt. So I had to replace the belt with missing fingers. And it's actually a suicide shift bike. So uh, I didn't have to pull a clutch, which is good. Yeah. Uh, but I had to hand shift and if if you miss shifted and ground a gear, that vibration into the hand was incredible pain, so I learned how to shift that bike really, really smooth at that, at that point <laughs> but that's uh yeah, and I was just sorting stuff out on like light, light duty at work uh, putting stuff on shelves, and then one month to the day we were back playing the pit stop and black vaults and could only do longest set I could do was half an hour holding my hand that low it would just be throbbing after half an hour so if, I don't know if we just I can't remember if we did three sets of half hour or if we did four sets just to make up for it. But.
0: So you're you're a bit of a crazy man then.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, I guess <laughs> looking back, at the time it all seemed pretty normal. but So the
0: thought never occurred to you that my guitar playing is over, the band is done, I can't do this anymore. You just went the
2: thought occurred uh but my biggest drive was the band that i had a band and that i had even at that time i was uh, 2003 i was 21 i was 20 still because it was before so that was 20 years old i already had a bit of a guitar collection and you know living in a band house you're consumed by it all like we all had our day jobs but but the the practice room was right beside mine and I had my guitar collection, you know, I had my Les Paul Custom, my 70s Les Paul Custom by then, and my high watt half stack, and it's just, to me, I couldn't justify owning those anymore if I couldn't play them. So I know that sounds fairly materialistic maybe, but my drive to have a band and have the instruments that I've worked for and worked on, and you know, I, I bought like my Les Paul Custom, I bought it and it needed a fret job and I couldn't afford one. So that was the first fret job I ever did was on a 71 Les Paul custom. Nice. It's also the last fret job I ever did because it (laughs) took a long time and it was really hard. I'd rather have somebody else do it. But, you know, just all the time and effort I put in for all these years into the band and guitar, there's no way I could lose it over a couple fingers. Right. Kind of a thing. And I was at that time, I was just starting to learn slide. And I actually can't remember if I wrote a slicker hair back before or after I lost the, the finger, but that's. That's the finger I put the slide on now is, is the, the ring figure that's been cut off. So it, uh, I almost have a whole hand again when I do that. Yep. So
0: <laughs> so was the uh, the injury uh, pre or post your, your trip to Los Angeles?
2: Uh, it was well before the trip to Los Angeles. Yeah, this would have been... The fingers were in 2003 and we went down to Los Angeles in 2009. So I had six years of time to really get my chops back and find different ways to okay. play chords and stuff like and
0: that. uh in that journey uh where did carson cole come into into your sphere because carson cole's had influence on a lot of different people
2: yeah and uh and I, actually i've talked to jesse rhodes about that too we've had some right. good conversations about it um carson we first uh, learned about him when we moved to black Vaults and after playing jim and Jerry's, and we got some gigs in black Vaults at the motor end uh, there's a group of bikers in Black It's called the Assholes, which I'm now a proud part of, and we do lots of stuff for children's charities in the Toy Run, which this year, you know. But uh, but uh, they saw us play at the Motor Inn, and Darcy, who's an, who is an asshole and owned the pit stop in Blackpool, said we well, should play at my bar, and you know we're thinking about having you out for this big. Tusker that we do they used to do the southern Tusker down by Lethbridge and then they did it for a couple years right out by Big Valley
0: I remember that yep and in 2000 2000- I used to live in Lethbridge and I remember the, the the Tusker every year really going on down there yeah
2: yeah because Trax used to live in Lethbridge and they used to do all that there and then he moved to Clive and then uh Big Valley was where they did it for at least a couple of years and we were invited to play it in 2002 and we didn't really know what we were getting into I had my bike by that time But we were still fairly new in black vaults. We were in 2002 at that time. We would have been 19 kind of a thing. I had to borrow my dad's minivan, which was a really nice 1990 Dodge Caravan with a hot... It was black with a hot pink pinstripe down the side. It was actually pretty sweet. I wish we still had it in the condition that it was in. But we we took it because we didn't even have a van vehicle that could load all the gear that far kind of a thing that was trustworthy. And we went out just to play for the night. And then we watched Carson play and we are like, well, this is pretty cool and we had only prepared for the night so we went back home and then we came back the next day just for the festivities and everything and then we got to know Carson a bit more through that because then we played the toy run after that uh, same year and it came up that Carson had a studio out by Coronation and that he had uh, worked with Widemouth Mason and, and uh, we just got to be really good friends with him and we were able to um, you know we, we were hoping we were going to get a grant because he wasn't cheap. But one thing we learned with the grant writing proposal is that uh, uh, if you show that you're only going to do it if you get a grant, you're not likely to get a grant because they want to see some dedication. So we committed to this album, and uh, we wanted to do it right, and then we were able to go out there and record, and it was a renovated chicken coop and had bunk beds and a washroom. He stayed out there for a weekend at a time. It was amazing. And at that time, we were doing all the same functions as Carson Cole as, as well because he was playing the same bars as us, and he was playing for the assholes at every function and then we ended up doing even new year's shows we would uh the assholes would get the the hall and Blackfolds and i think the new year shows went for three or four years kind of a thing so he was just always talking to us and we were able to do our album with him and make payments on it after we were done so it, it uh it worked for both of us and it was just a incredible experience to record an album that way where you are gone for a weekend at a time not stopping in on different schedules kind of
0: so, did you record that record uh, live, off, live off the floor, and then add, or did you break it all down and record one thing at a time? Yeah,
2: that one was it was recorded to make sure we had the quality that we could to get on the radio. So, we actually recorded every track on that to radio quality instead of picking a couple. And for that, uh, especially to make it so we could do it easily, we did uh, we did it live off the floor. Uh, just until the drums were good and once we played it until the drums were good everything else was erased basically and we started over re-recorded everything so we tracked everything but it had a fairly live feel to it still just because we were all still in the studio No, we weren't a uh, it wasn't just somebody going to do their guitar part or going into the studio to do their bass part when somebody was doing their bass part in the other room we were all in the control room and i mean we were there for the weekend nobody had to drive so i mean we brought as much beer as we could consume and if it wasn't your turn to record and sometimes when it was it was it was it was a, a really neat atmosphere and even with carson there to avoid paying for too much studio time uh with my solos because we were staying overnight he would show me what buttons to hit on the recorder and uh after everything was done for the day, he'd just let me retrack my solo all night until I was happy with it instead of him having to sit there. So it still had a, and that was with everybody right
0: by my side. Did you record to tape then or was it digital? I, I
2: think it was all digital. I'm pretty sure I didn't see any reel-to-reels there. It yeah. was done on the Radar 24 board that I know at that time was what U2 had re- used for their latest album. So it was a, I'm sure it was all digital, but it was a pretty big deal too because he had studio equipment that was the same as what, well, what you two had,
0: right? So, Very cool. Yeah. All right, let's get another song in. What do you got this time?
2: This one. Actually, I mentioned scotch in this song, so I thought it'd be a good one for this. So, cheers again, thank you. Cheers. And this one's. Uh,
0: and you can give Jesse uh, Rhodes a hard time <laughs> because
2: I will. Once we're all back in the bars <laughs> again, and I see him again, we can uh, we can exchange mm. thoughts on scotch, scotch thoughts. Uh, This one is...
0: That's a podcast in itself right there.
2: (laughs) This one is uh, just uh, kind of started with some jazzy chords just because of the way my fingers work to not be able to make full chords and then almost started as an exercise around descending line. And with the band, it actually has worked out into something really special because the bass flow and the drums and everything, but I'm going to try it here acoustically and it's called... uh, I know how it feels. I think that's what, um, I guess I'm naming it here live on air because I haven't exactly picked a name for it, but it is a song.
0: Denver Swains and live at Gilmore Guitars. Gilmore Guitars Denver Swainson of the Frank another great song I'm really looking forward to hearing some of this stuff fully recorded with the band
2: yeah because especially that one there it has a bass line that wanders throughout all those chord changes and then also the solo section for me over top of it is quite fun too because I get to play with some chromatics and different things like that stuff that's not the norm for us right
0: so you are are planning on recording this have you made the plans to actually get into a studio and if so where do you think you're going to do it or are you going to do it on your own or
2: that's still the big question and actually one thing that we have thought about for a couple of years is that you know with a lot of friends of ours that record it might be interesting if we can do it kind of in segments at different studios and see right. um where we can go and what we can do because uh we're not adverse to spending money, but we're not playing three or four weekends a month like we used to back in the day. And and with the COVID, that is obvious that nobody has been, but even you know now I think if we're playing once a month and focusing on songwriting and development and, and playing uh, some festivals and stuff like that, we're pretty happy. So we don't quite have the band income that we used to when we were hitting motor ends everywhere across central Alberta Kent. Right. So the last couple albums that we've done have been extremely cheap thank you Mon and have been done with our gear or uh, where when Mon was uh, recording in Jeff Talbot from Oldbury uh, in his basement there right. we're able to do three songs there so I'm not sure what we're doing yet because we've got to balance you know money and our time and everything else and as we get older some things get easier and some things uh, get harder to make sure that everything can get coordinated but I want to get in somewhere before we end up with 30 songs again
0: right so um you you brought up covid a couple of times here just how it's uh kind of impacted how has it impacted e- even just you guys and uh, and the band well i think we've
2: been lucky as a whole with it as the band because uh we played in february for the winter wonder ranch at the black knight inn there and then A lot of times we take a little bit of time off in the spring because if we don't we end up with some festivals and our yearly things that we do in the summer and then more stuff gets added in and then all of a sudden sometimes we're sitting there in june and realizing that we don't have a free weekend until late september and everybody wants to go fishing or do something else in in one of those weekends so we hadn't booked anything and then all of a sudden covid came in and we saw across the board on our social media that all our friends had to cancel their shows and we were just like i guess we don't have anything to cancel but we also don't have the stuff that we thought we were going to have starting up in in the later spring and in the summer so we've been okay my work has kept going um and that's been up and down trying to keep guys working but with government subsidies and whatnot it's been a very interesting time and we did avoid band practice in the beginning when you weren't supposed to be going over to people's houses and whatnot and uh so we did follow regulations but as soon as we could all get back together it was really good to get back into the band room and for me as long as we're playing once a week in the band room i i get to try new stuff out and keep my fingers nimble it was kind of tough for that i think we went we might have even gone was it six weeks without any practice it might have been yeah could have been it could have been in march to kind of mid-april there
0: so as a general rule you guys will get together once a week and, and jam
2: yeah we still we do wednesdays Whether we need it or not, we always need it. Though we all personally kind of really enjoy it. Before we went to LA and when we got back from LA, we were doing every Tuesday and Thursday and doing band minutes, like actually writing down everything and everything like that. And obviously we've relaxed a lot on that, but we still get together every week just to try and get these new songs along. And then all of a sudden we get a gig again, and then we got to run over all our other songs that that we haven't run over for the yeah. last three weeks, kind of a thing. Yeah. So it always keeps us on our toes between writing the new stuff, stuff rehearsing it, and then also having to uh, run over, you know, 50 songs to to play at the Motor
0: Inn again. Right. So, talk to me a little bit about the trip to LA. How? What made you guys decide to get in a van and and go down there? And how did it all go for you? How long were you there? And was it worth the trip?
2: Well, I'll say it was worth the trip. For sure. And actually, Sarah and I were just talking about that the other night because the memories come up on Facebook. And my memory yesterday was, it said something like, ah, no written schedule, no job. You know, our RV is 30 feet from the ocean at Dockweiler RV. And at that time, we had, you know, this time, I guess, 11 years ago, we had just gotten there and, you know, there was no big pressure to get out there and find gigs yet. We tried to do things from this side of the border to book gigs. And we tried, we even joined the uh, the AFM, like the, the the union and everything like that but the problem with the union is that you had to get a certain pay scale before they would give you a visa for that show. So now that it's been 11 years, I think I'm safe to say that we thought, well, let's just go down there as tourists. And if we end up forming a band down there and then playing and coming back kind of a thing. So we didn't really have a plan, but we knew we wanted to do something. We knew we'd all had our day jobs from high school and, you know, we all graduated pretty much in 2000. So we had day jobs for eight years when we figured that we wanted to, uh, do something. I, I'd become a journeyman electrician, Will had become a journeyman electrician, and it was just, you know, we, we never took the time to do a tour across Canada, which we still wanted to, and we're still hopefully going to do in the, in the motorhome, but we just, we needed something to make sure that we didn't uh, grow older and look back and say, hey, we should have done something, and, and we thought about everything to do. We thought about Vancouver and Toronto, we're just touring more here, and we thought, well, why not just really do something that's a little bit far out there and just see what it is, and we are always adamant that we weren't looking for a record contract. We weren't looking to break through. If anything happened, we were obviously going to be extremely happy and appreciative of it. But we just wanted to try music without uh, having a day job and without being in our hometown for a bit. And with Vancouver and Toronto, we knew people that had gone there. And I haven't been to Toronto still today, but we've been to Vancouver and watched people we know play there and everything like that. And I just thought, let's do something different. And everybody agreed. So we saved up, gigged hard, saved up for a year Band-wise and financially, because both uh, Joe and us, we had mortgages to pay while we were gone. So we saved everything up and planned to go down for six months. And it was going so well down there that we actually stayed one more month and came home completely broke. But we played sixty shows in seven months down there, and and happening uh, Harry, if you're listening, uh, he was our main promoter down there. We actually oh, that's a good story too, how we found him because. <laughs> we we didn't know what to do when we got down there you know we took four days to get down to la and all of a sudden you know
0: we're here yeah now what <laughs> what
2: do we do now and we're like well i guess we better and rv parks are few and far between in la and we had a 28 foot motor home and originally going down we thought we were going to park in walmart parking lots and stuff like that because you're allowed to camp there and but with five people in an rv and was, a poodle, and a poodle and the small holding tank and whatnot—like there's just no way that we, like, what we thought was going to happen, could not happen. We realized in the four days on the way down that we had to find serviced lots and be able to, to dump our waste and fill up on water and have power instead of burning all this gas for AC and everything. So from Dockweiler, we caught a cab to the Sunset Strip. We said, "Take us to the Sunset Strip," and we thought, "Well, we'll start pedaling ourselves there." Well, the cab dropped us off, and we're like, "Here we are," and if we would have walked west that day we would have seen the sunset strip but instead we walked east for hours (laughs) and didn't see anything interesting except for grocery stores that got more and more run down the further east you got oh what do we do now we just spent like a hundred bucks on this cab ride from the coast to to west hollywood and uh you know we just weren't having a bunch of luck figuring out what to do and uh happy accident uh We had a sewage malfunction at Dockweather RV. Every day that we were there, actually, we we weren't booked in. So every day I had to go sit in the office and see if another space opened up and move from one space to another space. And then our sewage malfunctioned and put sewage all over the tarmac um, at about 1 o'clock in the morning, probably. I'm guessing that didn't go over well. No, we were sitting there playing cards and all of a sudden we are like, oh, smell that. And we had heard that there was a sewage plant inland a little bit that if the wind was actually blowing right you could smell it and we're like there's that sewage plant and then we're like oh no that's that's us and we were trying to warn people not to walk through it because it's a biohazard but people coming home from the beach that late weren't too sober either so yeah. they just walked through it and we tried calling hazmat and the police we called the lapd and they told us to call el Segundo, and nobody wanted to come out and do anything and then in the morning when the park opened all of a sudden then it was the biggest deal ever and it was a biohazard and there was yellow tape up and everything like that so I had a had a conversation with the park manager about how it was not our fault and I'm in construction and I know how plumbing works and then we drove out of there as fast as we could without knowing where the next place we were gonna (laughs) stay was and we found a Lincoln RV in Anaheim and from there we bought a van actually so we could drive around instead of we had money set aside for all this for everything that we were doing down there so we found a thousand dollar van And uh, then we were able to get around. So then through another friend of ours, Beth uh, Arison, she knew a guy that was in LA currently, that was in the music scene. And so she gave us his number and he was playing at the Cat Club on the Sunset Strip that night kind of a thing. So we called him and he invited us over to his place. It was actually an Airstream trailer in the back of somebody else's yard in LA, in Los Feliz. And uh, so we were over there talking to him and we were gonna go to his show that night. So we were just having a beer there with him, and all of a sudden, the promoter, Patman Harry, called him and said that he needed another band for tonight. And at that time, Noah Ang is the, the, the fantastic slide guitar player. He was the guy we were talking to. He had never heard us, had no reason to really trust us, but he just looked at us, and he's like, Nothing. yeah? And he's like, okay, Harry, I got this great band from Canada. They're touring through, and they'll knock your socks off. <laughs> and... uh we got to get on that bill. Like we had to leave his place, drive back to where we were staying, grab our gear, the gear. and then get into West Hollywood for that show. And then uh, Harry watched us play, and uh, we hit it off right away with him. And and we didn't get to play the next show he was putting on. He put on two shows a week. He did every Wednesday and every Sunday in, in Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And so uh, we went to a couple more of his gigs and got to know him a bit better. And then we ended up playing all of his shows and actually helping him when he could, when we could, with moving stuff and just. You know, he had us over for Thanksgiving that year and everything like that. We still keep in in really good touch. I'd like to more. We'd like to get down there again, but nothing's open right now. But we ended up getting in with him. And then from those Wednesday and Sunday shows, uh, you know, there's always seven bands on those nights kind of a thing, six or seven bands. And we got to meet the other bands there. And then from there, we got to go play their hometowns that were around. We got to play... San Diego and Ridgecrest and Ramona and Bakersfield Bakersfield and and Ridgecrest were two of the best places that uh, you know it was more Bakersfield and Ridgecrest is a lot more like Alberta there was cows and oils der- oil derricks and the the bar was full on a Saturday night kind of regardless where right. in LA it was hard to get people out on various nights yeah That's quite the experience
0: so any of those bands that you played with did is there any that went on and and any that we would recognize here or
2: well we uh we met a lot of people down there that uh, we were really lucky to meet like we met lemmy from motorhead right and uh and I you actually, guys
0: actually do a cover of that yeah and we were able to yeah.
2: hand him our cd with our cover on it and talk to him about that and i actually opened the door we were will and i were working the door for the club for harry that night when lemmy came up that was new year's eve wow and lemmy was playing with slim jim phantom across the street at the viper room wow with his with their band headcat and then they came back over to the cat club because Cat Club is owned by Slim Jim Phantom. So they were coming back there to relax afterwards. And Will and I were working the door. And it's like, Slammy. Let him in. It's like, holy cow, like you don't even know what to do. And then Harry came up to his lair and he's like, You want to meet Lemmy, don't you? So we got to go up to the VIP room there and meet Lemmy and met Ron Jeremy down there too. He was at quite a <laughs> few of Harry's shows and he was always fun. And and but as for bands, we got to play with a lot of people that were in other bands that were Uh, uh, Shane Gibson that we got to play with uh, him and Thomas Lang Uh, so Shane Gibson was in Korn he was uh, their live guitarist, uh, touring guitarist and I'm not sure if he was on album or not he passed away shortly after we left actually but him 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 and Thomas Lang who is a world renowned drum instructor and session drummer, they had a band called Schwarzenegger and all their songs were just about Schwarzenegger movies kind of thing so there's them and and lots of bands that we still stay in touch with but i don't think there's a i don't think there's any bands from that time that kind of shot out of the scene and became no no it's it's a tough it's a tough scene down there you know to to see people who are in famous bands and you know harry had uh a lot of uh you know a a lot of celebrities because he would do the jam every night it was harry's all-star jam and you know, like I carry Dizzy Reed's keyboard down the stairs at the Aqua Lounge owned by Larry Flint in, in Beverly Hills and all this stuff, but it's amazing that uh, you can have all these A-list players and incredible musicians touring through and everything, but I think L.A. was just so satur- saturated with music for so long that it's still hard to get people out or to pay attention there kind of a thing. Like I mean, if these shows came to Red Deer, they'd be packed for the night. Kind of right. So, but yeah, I don't know if much has really come out of that scene. But I know a lot of the bands that we... Played with are still playing down there and still doing well, so it's good to see them still playing over 10 years later.
0: Nice. Let's get one last song hit.
2: Yeah. A little bit quieter finger picking.
0: This is a song that uh, you posted a video on Facebook here earlier this week.
2: Yeah. Excuse me. I, I draw a lot of inspiration from a lot of things for songs, like when with the first song, Tonight's Stick Your Hair Back, that was just a character I had in my head and just a little bit of a storytelling song. You know, so some things can be completely not serious and just just uh whatever this one here is we've known quite a few people uh lost quite a few people to either drug addiction or suicide or kind of a combination of, mm-hmm. of both and that's just it's tough when you lose somebody um suddenly but also there's always the closer you are the more you might think that if i could go back i could do this or whatnot but the reality of it is, is that living with guilt that isn't really your guilt to carry it isn't doing anything for your stress levels or anything like that and i'm not a religious person but i am a spiritual person i just think that you know like i don't know any of the answers so with the way the energy is be hopeful that you can somehow connect with people again so this song is just about that it's about losing people but at the same time um thinking that uh not all is lost i guess kind of thing so i wrote this one pretty quickly and it just stuck as well
0: Denver Swainson live at Gilmore Guitars
1: If I had one last chance To sit and talk with you Tear down the barriers And find out what you were Going through It's too late For that now This linear world brings me Down It's too late for that See you
2: again
1: on some different plane, in a different shape. I have to wait for that now This linear world brings me down I have to wait for that now This linear world brings me
0: down This linear world brings me down Live at Gilmore Guitars denver swainson of the frank uh you talked a little bit earlier about being a guitar collector and for the purposes of the podcast you are playing a gilmore guitar and you're actually a, a member of the gilmore guitar owner family now you uh, reach recently purchased a gilmore guitar so I thank, am a, a, thank you very much for that
2: you're welcome i'm a proud member of the family i actually that guitar took two years for me to to a choir there, so I'm actually really happy that uh, it waited around for me while I was trying to figure out how to get it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And what you're playing here is a parlor guitar. It's Brazilian rosewood back and sides with a spruce top and a custom-made sound hole pickup from MJS Pickups in Mississauga, Ontario. It's a beauty. You make it sound good.
2: Ah, So talk to me a little bit about
0: your... your, your collection of guitars
2: uh i started collecting guitars probably the f- first guitar i got i guess and i just always wanted every guitar and when i was younger uh, i started playing guitar at, seriously at 13. Uh, before that i had a classical guitar that my grandfather had given me and it ended up with one string and no tuners and and at one point I tried to restore it a little bit, but when I was 13, I got serious about wanting to play guitar and that's when I found out that my granddad actually had a guitar, another one that he had set aside for me um, for when I expressed interest and it was a, it's a 1984 Kei from Japan. And uh those are actually great guitars. Yeah, and it's a it's a really nice guitar and it's still it's one that I, I you know I, I knocked it around a little bit when I was younger and I, I didn't really mean to, but even just walking through doorways, it took a chip out of the headstock kind of a thing. Um but I try to keep it in really good shape now and I still play it quite a bit because it's it's basically a, a Martin D twenty eight copy kind okay. of a thing, and and it, but it is it's a very resonant guitar and he gave me that and uh I immediately wanted an electric guitar as well, but my granddad was a little bit of a funny man in the way that he never really checked up on how I was doing with the guitar immediately. didn't really have a chance. And out of nowhere, he just called my mom one day and said, I don't know if he's playing that. Should I, I don't know if he should have it. Maybe I should take it back. No, <laughs> oh, he's playing it. He won't put it down. <laughs> like, and, and she said, granddad called and said, he didn't know if you were playing that guitar. And i had it in my hands at the time kind of a thing. But I think because he had bought it, I think he bought it in the, the late 80s and he had held on to it. All this time that i think he was kind of reluctant to even give, give it, it to up. me even though that that's what it was supposed to be for and uh so I, that was my acoustic that's the acoustic on the first album in 99 and then i got a PV predator after that for an electric and then shortly after that i just really wanted a, a name brand guitar like i i saw the you know the, the big stars playing so I, I got a fender mexican uh strat a powerhouse from milestone music downtown red deer there yep and then by then I had acoustic and two electrics so it's just by by then too I was working summer jobs and had a little bit of money so every time I saw a guitar that was fairly cheap I would I would pick it up I got a Kwai, it kind of looked like a, a Mosrite guitar out of Avenue Guitars in Edmonton that was 150 bucks and then um, when I was 15 or 16 my mom moved to Arizona and I would go visit her a couple times a year and I kind of made it that Every time I went on a trip somewhere I would have to bring a guitar home so from my trips to Arizona I ended up with a blue sparkle Dan Electro 12 string and a 70s Harmony Flying V and a SG copy in an Orlando SG copy from Japan and a Hamer a Korean Hamer uh, double cutaway and so by the time I was 20 I had quite a collection of quite cheap guitars right and then I ended up kind of consolidating those for for better ones and whatnot and and I have a really hard time getting rid of guitars. And I've only gotten rid of a handful in, in my life, I think, before. Between Sarah and I, we have over 50 right now. And I've probably maybe gotten rid of six total. And that was trying to trade up. There's still some I regret getting rid of. But I was able to, like, I traded the, I ended up trading the Hamer for an Epiphone Scroll, which is a really cool 70s Japanese guitar. It had, like, the scroll like a mandolin, but it right. was less ball size and everything. And I traded that and the, and the kawaii was it for a 1957 les paul jr in a pawn shop downtown red deer wow yeah and uh, it had been refinished i don't think they quite understood the value in it. And I, I didn't have any money at the time and i went in and played the guitar kind of a couple of days and then i got to figure something out and this was before the internet was really big or before you know you couldn't just search things as easily but the epiphone scroll was a rare guitar they were only asking 700 for seven or 750 for the 57 les paul jr and I took these guitars in because I didn't have any money and I didn't think I was going to get it. And I was hoping to trade right on the spot. And He said, well, let me do some research, go have a coffee and come back. And I thought, oh, this won't, this won't happen. Then. And Sarah and I went and had a coffee and I came back and he said, you got yourself a deal. And the first thing I said was what? <laughs> and Sarah kind of squeezed my arm. I was like, let's just get this done and get out of here. <laughs> so all of a sudden then I had that and and I did find uh, the 71 Les Paul Custom in uh, actually online in the music store in in Boston, Massachusetts, before eBay was really around, and it was, you know, I, I managed to find guitars for good deals, and and then hold on to them when people, you know, they grow in value. Like I, my '67 SG Junior, I got from eBay for $400. Wow! And my '77 Gibson RD Artist, uh, it's missing the move of electronics, but I got it off of eBay for $500. I and mean, those,
0: those are interesting guitars.
2: Yeah, I'll show you that one sometime because we had the the great guitar wall fall of 2000. 12 was a, another thing. We had our basement at the house we built in black vaults. We had a slot wall up on it. And I'd put all the screws through the... in the studs. Through the thin part and into studs and everything. I thought I had enough but when the summer humidity hit and there was 30 guitars hanging on it, it we were sitting on the back deck and all of a sudden we heard a big boom.
0: A resonant that? boom. Yeah, you couldn't hear any guitars,
2: but I just, I just had a feeling, a really bad feeling. We went downstairs, and yeah, the, the and that slot wall is heavy board. Like yeah. it, it's quite heavy, and all the guitars fell down. Some of it made it through with just some bumps and scrapes, but the RD actually broke the neck around the second fret. Oh, okay. And, but the fretboard never broke so I was able to straighten the truss rod and put it all back together. I'll have to bring it in for you one day, but that's uh, most of our guitars now have bumps and bruises from the great guitar wall fall nice. that uh, we will never forget in our lives. <laughs> nice. So, but uh, Sarah's mostly Fender, and I was mostly Gibson until then. I started some Fenders in that direction. But between that and amps, we just need to build our studio now. Then I can get everything set up. So hopefully that's in the cards for the next. Year,
0: two years. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Sarah. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Very much. It's Live at Gilmore mm-hmm. Guitars podcast. It's in the can.